it is to join you all together in the word tonight. The time in which we live as we read the news, we hear the prophetic words of the psalmist, the second psalm, echo through history. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. Master Adonai scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then in this psalm, the, the speaker changes from the Yahweh figure who's on a throne to his anointed one, the Messiah. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Do you hear the universal coming kingdom of Jesus Christ over all the nations? It's the destiny of planet Earth. I don't know what chapters 4, 5, and 6 include, but if the, the last chapter is chapter 7, I know what happens. I know how it ends. And uh, somewhere I'm in the middle of that book looking at some hardship coming, but we know where this is all going. And that is great encouragement. The psalmist says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. I always give you a moment of silent prayer. We just had a wonderful prayer meeting. We just sang some praises to the Lord. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. Uh, make sure we've taken full advantage of the grace of God for believers in 1 John 1, 9. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our sins because we want you to forgive us and cleanse us on the basis of your character. Because we want to walk in the light as you yourself are in the light. Father, we want to walk in fellowship with you. We want to enjoy what you provided for us by your son's work on the cross and the ongoing work of your spirit in our hearts. And Father, we avail ourselves now of your word, seeking that illumination by your spirit so that we'll understand you, your works in history and your mighty works on our behalf. Father, the Apostle Paul taught us to pray, indeed he did pray for the Ephesians, that they would know, their eyes or their hearts would be open to know the surpassing power, your surpassing power that works on behalf of those who believe. Father, we want to see your work in our lives, we want to see your power, and tonight as we turn to your word in Isaiah, we'll see it on display in history. Father, help us be uh, aware that though we don't have additional revelation since you closed the canon with the Apostle John, we don't have more of the Bible to tell us more of your mighty works. We have what we have here to show us how you're working in history and you're working in our days, in our lives, in our moment-by-moment existence. Help us remember this as we turn to Isaiah 37 in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 37, as it says on the screen behind me, Isaiah 37, where we have to finish the conversation 
We've had Hezekiah the king, the great king Hezekiah, who worshiped the Lord and no, no one else, who tore down the high places by reinstituting the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the temple. He reestablished temple worship. He started with the Levites. They reestablished temple worship, and then he had a massive Passover celebration, invited the northern kingdom. And it was this work of rejuvenation and restoration, recommitment of the nation to the covenant uh, that God had made with Israel on Mount Sinai that prompted the people to go and smash the idols. The people, a small remnant perhaps, followed the lead and obeyed what the law required. And they set conditions within Hezekiah's kingdom that um, the future generations would not be corrupted by Baalism, by the worship of false gods and the phallic cult, which had rampantly taken over the culture. And, uh, and this is the, the backstory, the prior story in Hezekiah's ministry to this uh, poignant moment in his life, this ultimate crisis they called the Assyrian crisis, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent Rabshaka to go and... Uh, invite them to lay down their weapons and surrender to the Assyrians and become an Assyrian vassal state as they had uh, been before. And Hezekiah resisted, and Rabshakeh had three speeches, as we've seen, and they're very challenging to us because, and encouraging to us because we see a secular or pagan worldview trying to talk about the things of Yahweh, God of Israel, and missing it, misunderstanding. For example, remember this awesome part where Rabshakeh says, don't listen to Hezekiah that, that Yahweh is going to defend you. He tore down all the high places where they were worshiping Yahweh. Obviously, your God must be mad at you because he took down all the worship centers. And so, see, this is the exact opposite of the case. God of Israel, the only God who exists, is very pleased with Hezekiah because of the removal of the high places and the protection of the children because that's exactly what the law required him to do and be about. But see, you would have to know God's word to think that way. And Rob Shaka doesn't know God's word. He knows his culture. He knows the way people think. He knows the popular opinion. He knows what the consensus is out there. And here's the thing. A lot of times, and perhaps most times in the time in which you live, if you know and agree with the consensus, you don't know what God thinks. If you are consumed by, well, this is what everybody knows, and you don't know why you know it, you probably don't know what you think, and you probably think contrary to what God has said, which means that you know something that isn't true, and you don't know the thing that is true, and you've been deceived. Well, this is a time of peak de uh, deception in Israel's and in Judah's history, and perhaps this is a time of peak de uh, deception in our history. Uh, where, for example, even the Christian virtue and requirement of love has been co-opted to mean something that is its opposite. The affirmation of self-destructive sinful tendencies is presented as love. If you don't affirm my self-destructive tendencies, then you don't love me because you don't give me what I feel like. For just one example, and it's, there's nothing new under the sun, but as we read into the story, we had Hezekiah's ingenious response. First, with Rav Shaka's message, the chief cupbearer for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, Hezekiah goes and sends a delegation to Isaiah. Go inquire of Yahweh for us. You're the prophet of the Most High God. He talks to you and therefore to us through you. So let's inquire of God's word. And that's the first thing you want to do in a crisis is ask, what does God's word say? And I know you and I are probably cut from the same cloth. When we're in the middle of a crisis, we're emotionally compromised. The last thing we feel like doing is busting out our, our colored pens and our Bible and our notebook and going to town. The last thing you feel like doing is clicking on, uh, on 
PrestonCityBible.org and finding the library and going to listen to some messages on uh, the Word of God because it's going to be a study and you have to think and you're invited to read. It's the last thing you feel like, but it's the first thing we need to do. And that's what, I, that's what Hezekiah does. He sends for Isaiah or sends his delegation to Isaiah as though to, a, to the, the other king. Go talk to the real king's representative and inquire of him based on this. And, and does the Lord know? And we had Hezekiah's brief oracle. And now uh, the, the third message from Rav Shaka, when he had to send... Um, the, the army of Assyria went away because God said they'd go away because of Terhaka of Cush. Rav Shaka had a third message, don't let Yahweh deceive you. And there can't be a more satanic message than don't let the God who really is there, who only speaks the truth, who only does what is righteous, whose righteousness is the source of all of his acts. Don't let the God who really is there and really is God and perfectly righteous, don't let him deceive you, is Rav Shaka's message. And Hezekiah does something that is exactly what we need to do. It's the next step. You go to God's word and inquire of God's word. And while you're doing that, you inquire of God himself. And he goes to the temple and he spreads out uh, Rav Shaka's message before the Lord, it says. And that's in Isaiah chapter 37. And we just last week looked at his prayer. It's a short prayer. I'll re- review it with you just very, very briefly. Verse 14 of Isaiah 37, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. That's a beautiful language. God knows everything. He knows what was said. He was there when it was first written down. He saw the, the letter in eternity past before it was written. He saw it being generated in the thinking of uh, Sennacherib working with Rabshakeh before anyone ever saw it on paper. And yet Hezekiah takes it and spreads it out before the Lord. That's a hint, believers, that yes, God is omniscient, but you still need to deal with him as a human being with your limitations, and you need to communicate with him. So he spreads it out before the Lord, and this is the message. God, do you see this? Now, we know God sees it, but I'm drawing your attention to this. Father, this is what I want us to talk about. This is my concern. He prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, that's Yahweh of the armies, The God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. There is no great king, Sennacherib. There's no great king, next will be Nebuchadnezzar. There's no great king, American, great hope of the future political scene in America. There is no great man. But there is the God-man, Jesus Christ, and there's this heavenly Father, and we have one God in three persons, and this is where greatness must always reside in our hearts. Otherwise, we're idolaters. O Lord, though God of hosts, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Remember we said, this is how to pray. Did you hear what they said about you? Now, he's saying it about Hezekiah, he's saying it about Judah, but to to them, they belong to Yahweh, and to them, it's ultimately about him. Someone messes with your kids, you know, moms and dads, someone messes with your kids, there is an instant mama bear response. Nobody had to teach you to be a mama bear. It's in your your genetic code. It's in your very DNA. They said, what about my baby? And you have an instant response that they're saying that about your kid, but you take it personally, more personally than if they had said it about you. And this is, this is a personal rapport that the anointed of Yahweh, the Messiah of their day, King Hezekiah, anointed to be king, he is appealing to that relationship. They have, they have sent these words to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, 
The kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. And they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. It's true, right? They're wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord God. Now, here's the great request. The first request was pay attention to what Sennacherib's saying. And the second request is like it in verse 20. Deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. So much of the prayer life in the Old Testament is basing an appeal on God's reputation. When Moses must intercede for the nation after God says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to destroy these, um, the nation because of their rebellion uh, in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. God says, I'm going to destroy them. Moses must appeal, and he does it on the basis of God's character. What will the pagans around us say? They, they know that you are the God of, of Jacob. You can't destroy Jacob, start over with just part of Jacob and Levi and Moses. You can't do that because of your reputation. That's the basis, in essence, of Moses' appeal. Look what you've already said you would do, and on the basis of your self-commitment, you can't do this, is the argument. This is the kind of reasoning you see so often in prayers. God, who can praise you in Sheol? There's no praising you in Sheol. The boat of the dead. There's no, there's no hearing your praises among the living so they'll come to believe in the living God. That doesn't happen in Sheol. Let me do this now so save my life so I can praise you. So often in the appeal, in the lament psalms, in the, in the requests, in, in the prayers of the Old Testament, you have this kind of reasoning and we should take note. Are you theologically oriented in your life? Are, are, are your crises theological crises? When you have a problem in your circumstance, do you see it as God's problem? Do you see it as something that is covered by Romans 8.28, that is under the aegis of God's mission that he's placed on your life, giving you his Holy Spirit so you can be about his work? A spiritual life empowered by the Spirit through the Word so you can make disciples? Do you see your problems as the problems of a disciple maker? of a minister of the gospel? Do you see your problems as the problems of a child of the living God, of someone born again into his royal family with an eternal destiny to rule with Christ in his coming kingdom? Do you see your problems theologically? Because that's why this is here for you. That's what this is supposed to do for you and me. We're supposed to take this information that happened in history to a, a, a theocratic administration of the kingdom of God on earth in the person of Hezekiah, and we're supposed to apply that to ourselves in the sense in which it does apply. We are God's children. We have been marked out to rule. And our problems are problems of God's children. And so you're never alone. And you have never any right to try to handle your circumstance alone. And there are the Sennacheribs knocking at the door. And what you need to do is inquire of God's word and go after Isaiah. And then you need to take it straight to God in prayer. We talk to God about what he's told us after he has told us in his word. And that's that wonderful paradigm of biblical communication. In verse 21, you have the prayer response, the, the response of God to Hezekiah's prayer. And this is the part where you see a dispensational distinction, if you will. God is going to send through the prophet Isaiah his word, his word, that will be the direct foretelling of God's word to Hezekiah. And, and here's what happened with that. Isaiah or one of his uh, associates in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote down what God said through Isaiah. God wrote it down for us and reposed it. And what it becomes now for us is what we call scripture. And it's special, direct revelation from God. And beloved, I want for the kings of our day to be able to have prophets 
that can tell them, foretell directly God's revelation such that we should write it down and include it in the Bible. I'd love for that to be happening if it was God's will. But the thing is, the thing is, God shut the Bible. He opened it for us by closing it in terms of, its, of expanding it. And that special revelation phase of history concluded in around 96 AD with the Apostle John when he completed the book of Revelation. And it's so important to catch this thematically. The book of Revelation ends with the curse, the warning, do not add to this book. Do not take away from this book. And it's the last of God's special revelation for us in this time in which we live. So what's the difference? Well, Isaiah can go right to the king and say, this is God's answer to your prayer. And you don't have that happening in our day. When someone tells you, I've got a word from God for you, my general advice is to run. And if you're not going to run, it's because you have something to share, not something to receive. I would never listen to a fortune teller. I would, listen, I love you and I'm telling you, I never would ever, ever encourage you to listen to a fortune teller. Anyone that can tell you your future, by, supposedly, by looking at any animal remains, any kind of uh, zodiac signs, never read your horoscope. You can get an app that'll tell you what your horoscope is, never read your horoscope. Well, what, what, what can be the damage of them telling me what, what my future, what's wrong with that? Because you have a future to live and it's called every moment of your present existence. And you don't need satanic doctrines of demons informing your decisions or your perspectives or your feelings or your desires. You don't need Satan planting some seed about your future that becomes what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't, don't go for any of that, that satanic demonic garbage. It's all illicit. Go to God's word. It's God's revelation to you. And so what I'm showing you is you have the kind of response in the heart of God that you can expect on the basis of your intercession. Be diligent in your prayer life like Hezekiah, like Nehemiah. Be serious like Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry about prayer. But do it with an expectation that the same God who answered Hezekiah through Isaiah is answering your prayer too. He's dealing. And he may show you how he works it and he may not. And all that time we've spent together, you and I, praying together for the list, for those people in our lives that don't know Jesus Christ, those people in our lives that, that do but are acting like they don't, those people in our lives that won't walk with him even though they have trusted in him. All that time we've spent praying for God to intervene, for God to work. You better believe God is working. He's doing something in our time. And to, to borrow from, his, uh, from Habakkuk, we wouldn't believe it if we were told. And we don't know how he's weaving the grand mosaic together, but we do know enough to trust him and to be persistent in our prayer life. And again, if I was running the show, he would bring a prophet and tell us exactly his answer like the next day after we make a prayer. He would send an angel like in Daniel 9 and just tell us the deal. But generally speaking, can I say that's not how he works with us in the age in which we live. Well, why not? Why are we so impoverished? Why do we have so much less than Daniel or than Hezekiah hearing from Isaiah? I contend we don't have less. God works with us differently. He has put his Holy Spirit in our hearts to abide forever. And remember what God said to Moses when uh, Moses said, I can't deal with these people in Numbers. 
I can't deal with these people. Uh, I need more help. I need more horsepower. And God said, you have the Holy Spirit. What's wrong with you? A special ministry of the Spirit on you. And he said, okay, get the elders of Israel together. And they all got the Holy Spirit and they all prophesied and they didn't do it again. And then the, les- the lesson for Moses was, you have exactly the power that you need because I've given you my Spirit. And he said, would that all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. It's one of the great conclusions. And here you are today with the Spirit of God living in your heart forever to bring about God's work in your life. Here we are with the words that we don't even need to worry about what we're going to say at times because the Spirit is going to take what He's taught us and bring it forth through us in our encounters, in our engagement, in our conversations with those that need to hear. God is going to move some mountains in your life and making disciples because that's the mission that He has for us to do. And so why doesn't He send a prophet to tell us? Why is it illicit for a president of the United States to consult uh, mediums and spiritists and zodiacs and all the things that our presidents have done? Why is it illicit for a prophetess to conclude the last administration as the, the, the spiritual influence over the president in the White House? Why is this illicit and, and should be completely rejected by the people of God? Because it's not how he's doing it today. And much more important, I mean, while, while you're at it, if you want to know God, get with his actual prophets and apostles and, and, and submit to what they've said. Fully process it, fully, thoroughly do the deep dive on God's word. And once you fully process God's word, maybe he'll send you an angel. But I suspect by the time you fully process, understood, and submitted to God's word, by the time it's fully had its sway over you where you're living it, you are going to be with me judging the angels. That's our destiny. 1 Corinthians 6. Well, that's a big setup. God is going to answer Hezekiah through Isaiah, and you want to pay close attention to the kinds of things God is doing when you intercede with him on the basis of his character. Ah, the beautiful Masoretic text of the Hebrew Scriptures. I heard that sigh of delight. By Yishlach Yishayahu. Could you look up here, please? Yishayahu. Yesha. Salvation. Yahu. A plural form of Yah. Yahweh is my salvation, or Yahweh is salvation. Anybody have an idea what that name is? Yesha Yahu. That's the Hebrew form for Isaiah. Or as they say in Great Britain, Isaiah. Or as they say in Hebrew, Yesha Yahu. And then Isaiah sent out, son of Amotz, to Hezekiah. So Isaiah has a message. It doesn't say that Hezekiah went to Isaiah again. It says Hezekiah, remember the last paragraph, went to God in the the temple, in the house of God, and he spread the letter out and said his prayer. And Isaiah, without being prompted by Hezekiah's people, it doesn't say that, Isaiah just sends a message. God said to Isaiah, I've got something for you to go tell um, Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, God of Israel, because you have interceded with me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Let me just, we'll read the sentence and we'll go back for a second. This is the word which Yahweh has spoken against them. All right. There are a lot of embedded quotes in this play, as I've told you. You keep indenting to the left with all the embedded quotes, but we'll keep, we'll keep track. Isaiah says to the king, this is what Yahweh, God of Israel, says. And this is his quote. I should have indented more. Because you have interceded with me. In your Bible, in verse 21, this is perhaps the most important word in the passage. Your word, your Bible might say prayed because you've prayed to me. 
because you prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. It wasn't surprising for me. Sennacherib is spelled with an A, S-A-N, and then there's a, you got a, it's really Sancharib. Sancharib would be how you read it in Hebrew. Um, Funny how we got to Sennacherib in English. But, um, But anyway, because you have interceded is my translation, and I'll just hang out on this one word really quickly. This is a form that my three or four Hebrew students in the room are going to say jumps out at them because we spent an outsized amount of time on this particular verbal form. It has a hit in the front. You see the hit? It's hit palalta, and that's a hit pael, which means reflexive, and that's all you need to know. It's a reflexive. It, this verb, whatever it is, it reflects back on the, the person doing it, and it's somehow he's giving this, but he's also benefiting from this. This is the word pray, palal, to pray or to kneel before in prayer or to supplicate, but it's in the hit pile stem, which means probably to intercede because he is standing in the gap for himself on behalf of his nation, but toward God. And so it's reflexive. And that is intercession. He is praying on behalf of the nation. He is praying not just as save me. He's saying save us. And he's including God's honor as the reason why. So God summarizes the name, that, that prayer that we just read from Hezekiah as an intercession, as this inclusion of himself in the act and the, ben, and the one receiving the benefit. And, uh, and you could say prayed. It, it would be fine to pray. But it's more explicit. It's more distinctive. Because you've interceded with me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which Yahweh has spoken against him. So you asked me, you asked me to deal with him. By the way, God, Hezekiah asked God to save them from Sennacherib because of God's honor. This is so gratifying if you think about what God does next thematically. It's the Papa Bear scenario. He says, oh, really? And God starts lowering the boom prophetically on Sennacherib. He says what he thinks about this, uh, this pagan who has blasphemed him. He lets a little bit of the smoke pour out of his nostrils, as it were. He lets you see his anger and his wrath, and it's wonderful news. It's wonderful news. This is the word which Yahweh has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. Behind you, she's shaken the head, wagged her head as a as a taunt, the daughter of Jerusalem. Who's the virgin daughter of Zion, the young daughter of Zion, the, the, the baby? It's, it's the people, it's the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, which is headquartered in Zion. And so it's imagery, it's poetic. God speaks in poetry here through the prophet Isaiah. But he says, this little country that you think you're going to take down is laughing at you, is despising and mocking you, you who have blasphemed me. Why can the virgin daughter, just imagine, think of it, just take it as a dad, a big, strong dad who's not afraid of anybody, and his little daughter who's been, who's been uh, mocked and, uh, and frightened, who's run to her daddy crying and said, you can't believe what they said to me. She's standing behind her dad, holding his leg, peering around the side at the, bad, at the boogeyman that dad is now addressing. That's what's happened here. And God says, this little girl is laughing at you. And she's mocking you, and you think you're going to mock us. You think you're going to pull your psychological warfare on, uh, on my people and make them afraid of you instead of fearing me. Well, here's how this works. This is God's oracle against Sennacherib. 
Whom have you taunted and reviled? You've messed with my daughter, but really you've messed with me. Camp Rete, the first year in, in the Rocky Mountains, we had some very eager young uh, campers. It was early in the week because as the week goes on at camp, they get ti- more and more tired. But they were up before camp duties. They were up at like 6 or 5 in the morning, some of the kids, especially from this church. And they were having a morning run through the woods just on the outskirts of the Rocky Mountain National Forest. And you know what happened. We all made it home safely, so let me allay your fears. But we also had the experience that these young, young men on their morning run at 8,500 feet above sea level with no oxygen to, to, to speak of. We also know that they cut the trail, uh, uh, cut, cut the, the trail where a black bear cub was on one side of the trail and mama bear was on the other side of the trail. And they ran in their route and before they knew it, they had cut between the mama and the baby. And, uh, you know, having read a couple of magazine articles through the years or books or whatever, I would have expected them all to have been killed uh, horribly in a, in, a, in a most grisly fashion, even though it's black bears. But nothing happened. I think before mama knew what was going on, they had already run on, but they had a story to tell when they got back. We just broke the one rule you're not supposed to ever break. We've we broke the trail. We crossed the tail, trail of that mama bear and her baby. And I'm really thankful that the story ends where uh, mama bear didn't do what she could have done because they're not going to outrun her. That, not, not all of them. And um, I'm also glad this wasn't a brown bear story because I, I really believe it would have ended differently. <sighs> do you think of yourself as one who has God as your heavenly father or do you Leave the time in which we spend in the Word and forget who you are. Do you walk in a life where you actually have a Heavenly Father and you're accountable to Him and He's on the hook to take care of you? He's taken that on as His responsibility as your Heavenly Father. Think about the concept of, um, without anybody ever writing anything down or making any contracts, think about the concept of obligation when you have a child. We all know this, right? We, we, we who try to take care of our business, who try to consider other people and not think of ourselves, we who have a basic kind of baseline historic Christian morality, right? We know that if you have children, you have to take care of them. It's your responsibility, and you better make sure you, take, you do it. And if you don't provide for your children, Paul says, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't feed your family. We know this, and our morality, our sense of right and wrong about this isn't superior to God's. We know that our children need our protection and our care. We know that we're to be partisan to them while being objective about them so that they can learn to be objective about themselves and yet know that they have someone that's partisan to them. It's a pretty good challenge, actually. Stay objective about your kids. Yeah, they, they messed up. But yet partisan to them, but they're going to be treated fairly. You know, that, that kind of approach. And this is how we feel instinctively about our children if we have any sense of responsibility toward them at all. And we think that we are special this way and that God is not because we can't see him again and we're dealing with the invisible God that we have to take on faith. But this is the answer that God has for Sennacherib. You have my virgin daughter laughing at you because you have reviled me and you're in trouble with me is the answer to the rhetorical question. Whom have you taunted and reviled? Remember, God's a better dad than we will ever be. 
Against whom have you raised voice? You've lifted up high your eyes. The idiom for lifting the eyes high can be translated um, to be haughty, haughtily lifted up your eyes in arrogance. The, the image of the eyes that are lifted up is, is in your view of yourself, that you are now the high and mighty. You see what our eyes are doing? And it's almost like we say looking down your nose at people. You lift up your eyes and you are the one. And we hate that when we see that in other people. And we try desperately not to see it in ourselves when we're guilty of it. But that's that arrogance that keeps popping up as a topic of God's whack-a-mole policies in Isaiah. If he spots it, he wants to smash it. And if he sees humility before him, he wants to exalt it. And that's the policy that we keep coming up with in Isaiah. Think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, borrowing from Romans 12. And God's going to smash it down. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, borrowing from 1 Peter 5, 6. And he will exalt you at the proper time. You lifted up high your eyes against me to the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One, the Kadosh, the Kadosh of Israel. I want to take this into a realm of, of, of abstraction, if you will, and say I'm not covenant national Israel. And so the reason why this applies to me is for a, a different reason than the Mount Sinai covenant. But it, for a stronger reason, applies to me because of my new birth in Christ. I'm a belonging to God in that sense. And so if Israel is God's possession and he's concerned with them being blasphemed and attacked, how much more should you consider this true of yourself? But, but Pastor Dave, church history is full of martyrs. It's full of Christians who have been persecuted and God allowed it. What, what does the Bible say about that is my answer. What does the Bible say about it? It says that the first time this happened in church history, Jesus Christ stood and saluted the one who testified to him as he was about to make his transition from this world to the presence of our Savior. And that's Acts chapter 8, and it's the first martyr, that's Stephen, as Saul of Tarsus is holding everyone's coats. Yeah, God does permit us to suffer temporally. And my challenge to you is that we have to stop living with a temporal focus because that's too short. It's too narrow. We're too petty. We're too worried about little things. We need to keep our eyes on eternity and live in this temporal frame, in this time-bound frame with that eternal perspective. The Holy One of Israel is the one who's been mocked and taunted, reviled. With the hand of your servants, that would be Sennacherib and his others that came with him, you have taunted Adonai. This is one of those cases where uh, it's actually spelled Adonai. That's the name, one of the names for God, which, is, which means Lord, which means master, boss. And I've, I just put it as a proper noun. You could say the Lord. And you've said, and here's, what, here's the embedded quote. Here's what God said. Here's what Isaiah said God said, Sennacherib said. And that's, what, that's what's going on in this interesting literature. With my many rechavim, my many rechav, cherub, uh, chariot, Today's uh, uh, Soviet, or sorry, um, Israeli tank is called the Merkava, or Merkava, and it is from this word Rechev to be a, a chariot. It's a form of chariot. Um, with my many chariots, I have ascended the high mountains, the slopes of Lebanon, 
and I cut down its tall cedars, choice junipers. And I've come to the highest peak, its thickest forest. Now, hopefully you see in this poetic form a lot of rhyming and thought. A lot of things are the same being stated twice. Do you see that? Look at this. It's really cool what's happening up there. With my many chariots, I've ascended the high mountains, the slopes of Lebanon. Now, the imagery is clear, and this is common imagery in, in Isaiah, that when you have a king who thinks he's going in to destroy the cedars of Lebanon, it's saying that he can take down the tallest, greatest, highest thing we can think of. He's the mighty woodsman that chops down the trees is a way of saying he's the mighty king who takes over the nations. That's the imagery. So, these, so, so think of the, the great sequoias. And he's big enough and bad enough that with a dull axe, he can chop that tree down in no time at all. He's a tough guy. That's what it's saying. And I've done this because of my many chariots. Does this remind you of anything else we've read in Isaiah? Especially with the language of going up. I've ascended the high mountains and cut down the tall cedars. I think it sounds a lot like the I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14, 12 and following. The five I wills. Sounds a lot like it. And this is, this is the power behind the king of Babylon. Remember, in Isaiah 14, this is how the kings of the earth think. So great. We're just so great. You're going to be tired of how great we are. This is the kings of the earth. It's just pagan thinking. It's a far cry when you have people saying this and repeating what greatness that they purport to have. And everybody's like, oh, good. It's a pep rally. Our king's great. It's a far cry from the founders of our country who were constantly telling everyone to pray for God to have mercy on us and forgive us our sins. Humbling ourselves before God is a big difference from someone, for example, who will say, I don't really see any reason why I need to repent. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I haven't done anything that I need to repent of. George Washington was a much more virtuous man than perhaps anyone as a president in the 20th century. And that's a cultural factor, but it's probably true. I don't think there's ever a, a, a record of him or his wife consorting, consorting with spiritists and mediums. No witchcraft in the Washington presidency as far as I know. I don't know much, but let's just assume that's probably the case. And it's probably culturally that's true. But the most virtuous guy, perhaps to ever hold the office, not the wisest, not the smartest, not the fastest thinking, but perhaps the most virtuous, if that's true for George Washington, and perhaps it is, says regularly in his addresses, we need to pray. Well, again, I like to point out the distinction between the arrogance of the human kings and the humility that God is calling for. But look at this interesting arrangement. I've put in colors the things that, that line up. I have ascended, I cut down, I've come. These are the verbs. And the high mountains, the slopes of Lebanon, the tall cedars, the choice junipers. We have this back and forth, this interplay. Not that all the green things are the same, but the green things are the first thing he says, and then he says the second thing. The high mountains, the slopes of Lebanon. The tall cedars, the choice junipers, which could also be translated the the spear shafts, because you would use these trees for spear shafts. I've come to the highest peak, its thickest forest. And so it's very tight the way it's arranged, and it almost would sing like a song. And perhaps there is a little bit of a chant happening here. I don't know, but that's possible. I've dug and I've drunk water. Okay. Well, and I dried up with the soles of my feet all the Nile streams in Egypt. I'm the mighty one, and I have wreaked havoc across the world. I am the great king. This is 
a, a place that you don't have many like this, but there are a number, a, a few of them, in the Old Testament where God calls out the arrogance and bravado of the kings of the ancient world. They all do this. They lie about their prowess. They say they won a battle when they didn't. They don't list the battles that they clearly lost because it makes them look bad. And they, and they brag. And they say it's, and then they have some theological explanations because Marduk likes me or, or, uh, or some other, you know, made up thing. And God hears it all. I was there when, I, when you were bragging. I know all about your, your puny little squeaking about how great thou art. This is good news for us. There's nothing that is said that hurts you, that hurts this republic, that damages the lives of many. That God doesn't hear. The Supreme Court of Heaven is always in session. The only righteous man who ever lived on planet Earth was killed by the kingdoms of this earth unjustly. It was God's plan from eternity past for him to do so, but in terms of the human interactions, it was a kangaroo court and a, a, an evil response of satanic rebellion against God that Jesus was mistreated. But as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, what he did under unjust treatment was he kept entrusting himself to God the Father who judges righteously. And so you're hearing from God the Father in a sense here. You're hearing this attitude that God has. I, I hear all the bravado, and it's, we're echoing Psalm 2 now. Have you not heard? I love the rhetorical questions when God asks a question. Well, I guess kind of have not. Have you not heard is God's request or God's question. And the answer is, no, I really haven't because I'm a pagan and I don't pay attention to the things of God. Have you not heard? A long time ago, I did it. A long time ago. From days of antiquity, I formed it. Now, I could have put these in color for you. See, a long time ago, from days of antiquity, see how these are the same thought? I did it. I formed it. Yatsar, Asa, the two, two of your stock words in creation for God acting to create. Now, formed it is probably referring to the plan that has gone into action, that has enabled Sennacherib and those who came before him to become these great kings that would discipline, for God's purposes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. I raised you up to do the things that you've done, but you haven't given me glory. You've taken credit for yourself as though you did it. But I did it. I did this. You dried up the Nile, the Nile rivers in Egypt. No, I set you up to go be the great kingdom that you are. Now I am making it happen, is my translation. Atah, now. <clears throat> Hiphil for bow to bring it about. That you are making a rubble heap of fortified cities. I am making it happen that you are rubbling these cities. Now, think back with me just a little bit. Y'all, most of you have been with me for all this study. Do you remember what Rob Shaka said when he talked about the destruction of the other cities? He said, your God is not able to help you. The gods of these other places couldn't help them, and we took them down. Why do you think Yahweh can help you? And that's the worldview. It's like, oh, no, maybe God can't beat the Assyrians. Yoik, Scoob. What are we going to do? Maybe we can't win. 
And that's that psychological warfare that Satan has been waging on the human race since God dug our ears. What do you do with this? Well, think about the awesome upheaval. Sennacherib's man, Rabshakeh, says, you, you can't beat us because all these other gods couldn't beat us, and so Yahweh can't beat us. And God comes in and says, I have been equipping you to rubble all those cities all along. Isn't that interesting, the difference, uh, the way that, that turned about? It's exactly the opposite of the worldview. It kind of reminds me, think about this. Hitler's goal was to dominate the world, get as much Lebensraum as we need for the, uh, for the glorious Reich of the Aryans. The Aryan race, the super clean white race, is going to take over and get rid of all the undesirables and eventually fill up the whole. That's the Hitler, Nazi, you know, eugenics uh, Margaret Sanger Planned Parenthood program. Let's just call, let's connect all the dots. Hope you get that. The Margaret Sanger, Hitler, eugenics, Nazis, racism, kill all the undesirable people. That, it's all part of the same package. All right. Um, <laughs> now, if you, if, you, if you think about the project Hitler had with Israel, his goal was, because of the, the inner struggle that he said he had, his kampf, his struggle, mein kampf, He's got to prevail upon himself to look at the truth and say that even though I don't want it to be true, the problem with the world is the Jews, and we've got to get the final solution. We've got to get rid of them. Now, now in eradicating Israel, Hitler's project was to make and, and get rid of all the other people that are mucking up the earth, including the communists. What, what we need to do is promote the Aryan race, which ultimately, eventually, will dominate and, and hold its rightful place of sway over all the earth. Get rid of Israel, and then our pagan Gentile kingdom will rule the earth, ultimately, to overtime. Isn't it funny that exactly the opposite is the historical fact, that a Jewish kingdom with a Jewish king from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, is going to rule over this Jewish kingdom, which itself as the capital nation for a one-world divine government of this coming kingdom of Christ will rule over all the Gentiles and subdue and subjugate them into righteous government. And that's called the millennial kingdom. That's what's coming in the kingdom of Christ. It's exactly, in a sense, the opposite of Hitler getting rid of the Jews and then dominating as the Gentile. It is going to be the Jews ruling over all the nations. So good. Such a beautiful inversion. Such a clear-cut satanic ploy in the 20th century by the Nazis. And what's funny is the people that will call uh, Christian, biblicists, Americans will call us Nazis or whatever. They'll say we, we agree with the Nazis or something. They will be anti-Semitic at the same time. They will, they will call me a Nazi, and then they will be anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. So, in other words, you can't believe anything, pretty much anything anyone says unless you filter it through what the Word of God has said. But God's answer is, haven't you heard, a long time ago I set this up. From days of iniquity I formed it. Now I'm making it happen that you're making a rubble heap of fortified cities. So their inhabitants were shorthanded, literally, which means weak. They were shorthanded. They, they didn't have a long enough hand to stop you, and the inhabitants had to let their cities fall on them. They were filled with terror and ashamed. They were weeds of the field and the green herb, and you're the lawnmower. 
This is a saying we had down in the South when I was a kid about somebody being the lawnmower. They were weeds of the field and the green herb, grass on the roof, scorched before it's grown. So this, again, poetic imagery God is giving through Isaiah that these other kingdoms that they destroyed, God let them destroy them, and he set them up with Assyria as the lawnmower and these other kingdoms as the grass or as the sun to scorch the the grass to take it away. And you're sitting down, this is to Sennacherib, God speaking, you're Yeshav, you're sitting down, and you're uh, Yatsah, you're going out, and you're coming in, you're Bo, you're coming in, I know. God is not the local God of Israel. And the pagan worldview, no matter how it is expressed, whatever fragments of pagan worldview you hear, it isn't describing reality, and it doesn't matter how intelligent the person is telling you that that that's how it is. It's not like the pagans think. God isn't part of his creation, but he's everywhere present in it. God was perfectly, completely present when he made everything, and he didn't make anything out of himself. He made it all separate from himself, out of nothing. We call it ex nihilo creation. And that's the God who was always there, who is there now, and he's everywhere present, and nothing anyone's saying is getting past him. It's okay. Well, they've destroyed the tapes. It's okay. But see, this is the the Supreme Court of Heaven. You're coming in, I know, and you're raging against me. Hitragaz, Hitragezka is that word raging. You're involved in it. It's a hit pail. You're involved in it and you're um, doing it to me. You're raging against me. On account of this Hitragazka, on account of this raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, Now the judge is going to render his verdict. I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will cause you to turn back by the road on which you came. Now Hezekiah asked God, did you see what he's saying? Could you listen to these words that Sennacherib is saying? And then he said, save us from Sennacherib. Then God does something interesting. He doesn't say, Hezekiah... Here's my words to you. He says, Hezekiah, because of your intercession, here are, here's what the Lord says to the king, king Sennacherib. Here's his message. And I wonder if it wasn't something that they wrote up and passed on to the king. Uh, we have a message from God for you. Do with it what you will. But this is what God says he's going to do to Sennacherib. You're going to be taken away. Now, this answers Hezekiah's request that they be delivered. But he doesn't answer it to Hezekiah. He answers it to Sennacherib. It's very interesting. The two kings are speaking, aren't they? Yahweh is talking to Sennacherib. The great king who's really the great king is talking to the man who thinks he's the great king. This is, I love the story of God's interactions with these Gentile rulers. Nebuchadnezzar comes a couple generations later. How great I art. And all of a sudden, he is a donkey in his thinking. He becomes a feral human. And and spends seven years uh, in that feral state. Looks like Saddam Hussein when they pulled him out of the bunker. You know? And um, why, did, why did that happen to him? Because God took his senses from him and said, oh, you, you think you're all that? How about no more? How about your brain doesn't work anymore? 
How about that? No more functioning of the synapses and the neurons and the transmission of the, the electro, electrical impulses between them. How about if you no longer have the function of your prefrontal cortex? Enjoy the grass. That, and and th this is God who is there, and we don't think he's there sometimes, but he is. And so we read this, we read it slow, we look at it closely because this is God's word to these Gentiles who are raging against his people. And I praise him and I thank him for who he is and showing this to us. Well, let me finish the story. This is the end of the oracle of God against Sennacherib. The focus changes in verse 30. Then this shall be a sign for you, Hezekiah and Judah. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year, what springs from the same. In the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. So you're going to be in a three-year hardship. At the end of that third, third year, you will have planted and gone through a harvest to, to have the, econo the economy back again. So you're going to go through some hard times, but you're going to be provided for sufficiently, and then you'll be back. Because verse 31, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Beautiful poetic language. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant. And out of the Mount, Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria to Hezekiah, he will not come to this city because there's a hook in his nose, by the way, and a bridle in his mouth. He will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. Well, that was all his plan. You just took all of his playbook and took it away from him. He can't do any of the things that he was planning to do to Jerusalem. By the way he came, by the same he'll return. He will not come to this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. Herodotus suggests, by the way, an ancient historian that several hundred years later suggests that there was some sort of mice and rat plague, that, that there were accounts of this coming through and taking out the army somehow. So it was maybe by, by, a, fan, by a plague. It's an interesting suggestion. God could certainly have done that. And then you've got the angel of the Lord as like a, a mouse and rat wrangler sending a bunch of infested animals into the camp of the Assyrians to bite them and, and make them sick or something. But, but I think it's more likely that it's like the Passover when the angel of the Lord or the, or the, the destroyer comes through and destroys um, the firstborn in the, in, of all the houses of, of Egypt. But 185,000 Assyrians... So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. There was a hook in his nose and a bridle in his mouth. And when you read that oracle from God earlier, it didn't sound like, I'm going to destroy your entire army, and then we're going to bring you back to, to Assyria. But that's what happened. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived in Nineveh. Now, why did he live in Nineveh? That's where Jonah went. Why did he go to Nineveh? Because that's the capital city of Assyria. That's where they would go, because that's, Jonah's about the Assyrians. It came about as he was worshiping at the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. The climax of the story is Hezekiah's response to Rabshakeh's uh, letters, his, 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 his word. 
When Rabshakeh makes a speech, Hezekiah goes to, to Isaiah. When he makes another speech, he takes it to the Lord. And God's response to Hezekiah's intercession is the point of the story. Now, you don't have to see him kill all the 185,000 Assyrians to know that God is going to save you because he said he would. But what you do need to do with that information when he says, I'll save you, is you need to trust him. Our Father, we do trust you. We thank you for the message of this Assyrian crisis and the beautiful restoration, the beautiful resolution. But Father, we see, as has been said in our country, that freedom is only one generation away from being eclipsed, from being destroyed or disappearing. And in this case, Hezekiah would give birth or give rise to his wicked son, Manasseh. Father, just goes to show us that um, the day that you've given us is a day we have to serve you with to give back to you. It goes to show us that um, when we think that the story's over, it's not over until Jesus sets up his kingdom, and that's really the end of the beginning. And we thank you that we're in uh, a constant need. We constantly need to be in your word. We constantly need to be applying it, living it out, talking to you. And today's successes do not guarantee tomorrow's successes. We thank you for the successes you've given us. Thank you for the time in your word tonight. Strengthen us by it, by what we've seen of you, of your good, of your good character, of your uh, care for your children, and help us apply that and our trusting you through the crisis, crisis, whatever we have on our horizon. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen. amen.